Hello and welcome back to Nomads, you and I. Mark, I thought this afternoon would be a great time to record a podcast. Do you know why? No, I don't. Because there is a dog barking in the office. In other words, where I usually work out in the backyard, dogs are barking and party over for me because I cannot concentrate if the dogs are barking. That is very hard to do. (laughs) Yes. You see what I find is that like, how are you doing over there, Cindy? Uh, is it going well today? I heard you got your book done and stuff like oh, that. Oh, they're just trying to reach out. Yeah, they understand the people that are a little bit hesitant to being dog lovers. Okay. Something I thought might be interesting as an icebreaker before we jump into James ch- chapter 3 is that we are getting ready to have kind of a houseful coming up this coming week. Yes, that's right. Uh, Florida College Lectures is coming up, and we're going to have one couple and then a single guy when here with us. Yeah, one of the speakers actually is going to be upstairs in what we call the forest room. It's very much has an Oregon theme. And then, you know, we've had a few people we've had to turn away. And there is potential for the last bedroom to be filled, Mark. Oh, okay. I'm in negotiations with some friends. So the name of our house guests in the master bedroom this year will be Barry and Debbie Root. Yes. So have you ever heard of this phenomena called nominative determinism? You know, I think I'm kind of guessing here, but is that one of those things that depending on the name you're given at birth or your first or last name, that sometimes that seems to direct you into the path of your vocation. <laughs> yeah, so this whole thing may be totally bogus, you know, and it, it's just kind of fun to talk about, okay? So this is like entertainment value right here. But yes, there's two things. So there's aptronyms. And so that's kind of like when somebody's a carpenter and maybe his last name is Carpenter. And, you know, yeah. someone could argue genetic predisposition or whatever that, yes, because, you know, his people have been doing that for generations and he's kind of wired like that. So this, though, this nominative determinism is really more of this probably bogus theory that you gravitate subconsciously toward things that are like yourself. Okay, so for example, people that have played with this concept, there used to be this San Francisco Chronicle columnist named Herb Cain, and he collected and shared from his readers this kind of phenomena. So for example, a substitute teacher was named Dr. Fillon. Yeah. Uh, A piano teacher someone knew was named Patience Scales, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. All right, that works. I guess the Vatican at one point spoke out against rock and roll, and the spokesman happened to be named Cardinal Rap Song. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that works, right? We have heard of a nurse called, what, Bone Break? Yes, I think there was in Oregon. There was, I think, I don't know if it was a chiropractor or a nurse, but it was... Well, and then a lawyer, Shyster. Right? I don't remember that one. I do remember that one. You have a better memory than I do. Somebody else reported a food industry consultant named Faith Popcorn. That seems kind of far-fetched to me. I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, I don't know about that. that. But also there's that thought of what a disproportionate number of men named Dennis become become dentists. Right. And so, yeah, we learned that in the book Social Animal by David Brooks. And so, Mark, the whole reason why I'm bringing this up is because you do realize that our house guest in the master bedroom has the same thing going on because Barry Root is a horticulturalist. There you go. Bingo. So he is showing signs of nominative determinism. (laughs) There you go. 
All right. Well, that was fun, if nothing else. And so let's jump in then to James chapter three. You know, I always read out of the New American Standard Bible 1995, if that helps folks out there. Hopefully you've got your Bible out and you can read along if so. There it says, let not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, who have been made in the image of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt produce fresh. So Mark, that is verses 1 through 12. And so what are your thoughts there in verse 1 that says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. This is not the first time that James has introduced this topic. All the way back to chapter 1, verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Remember, James has talked a lot about deeds. You yes. Know, be a doer of word, not a hearer only, a faith that works. It looks like what we're doing here in this chapter, we're saying, oh, by the way, you don't just pay attention to what you do. You have to pay attention to what you say. Mm. I've been so confused about this first phrase where it says, let not many of you be teachers. And so I was comparing translations and trying to wrap my mind around balancing this with, you know, we're constantly supposed to be teaching with our examples and the mandates of parents to teach children and older women to teach younger women and every disciple really to teach the loss. So as I looked into the different translations, I know King James Version says, masters, let not many of you be masters. And I'm not sure if that's relevant or not, but it was interesting to me that the aromatic Bible in plain English says, among you, let not many of you become teachers among you, which to me brings some clarification that maybe this is a scenario where Paul is trying to prevent the less learned within a local body of Christ, preventing the fewer and more wise and gifted communicators to better lead the flock in truth as a whole. Do you know what I mean? Like too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing? That's a great observation. Obviously, this is not saying only certain people can teach, period. You're right. Parents are to teach. We're all to try to share the gospel with others. The word I think many hear is key, and I think teaching here is probably more in a public teacher. 
Yeah. The teachers that you'll find in the New Testament church mentioned along with the apostles and prophets. I think the word many, though, is pretty important here. That is a warning against people just indiscriminately jumping into it without due consideration of, wait a minute, if you want to teach, you need to learn the concepts. Mm-hmm. You need to know what you're teaching. First Timothy 1, 7. How about this? If you're going to teach, then you got to live it. Yeah. There were people that taught and they did not live it. And that'd be Romans 2, 17 through 29. And then because of what you're doing is so important, you could really lead a lot of people astray. Oh, man. If you're not doing what you should be doing. So he's not trying to discourage competent, qualified individuals from teaching. But maybe he's warning those who might be tempted to view teaching as an easy, effortless task. Yeah. Or start teaching from ulterior motives like prestige or the desire for the public spotlight. I recently was listening to a conversation that you were having on the phone, I don't know, about a week ago um, with someone about that where such a red flag to you. I remember you saying as a preacher who trains young preachers that if somebody is thinking about getting into it and they have this attitude of like, I just love the feeling of being up there. Right. Kind of. Yeah, that definitely is, that's not what it's all about. Where they're, they love the attention. They love the human praise. Yes. That's the trap the Pharisees fell into. Yes. This is not something to be a personal achievement. We are to use our teaching to draw people to God, not to draw attention to ourselves. And so what a specific and important warning then that follows here. My brother, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. I mean, that's terrifying, Mark. What are your thoughts there? Yes. Well, certainly James puts himself in that category, we. Mm. Two thoughts here. The judgment there could either be divine or human, or I think this would be the correct view. I think it's both. I um, never thought of that. God is going to judge men for every idle word, right? Matthew 12, that's true. 36 to 37. Yes. And... You need to make sure that you do not lead people astray. And so Timothy is told, look closely at your doctrine and your example. That way you'll save yourself and those who hear you. First mm-hmm. Timothy 4.16. So also does this thought to people who are given more opportunities and talents, you are held accountable for right. those right. opportunities and talents. Also, I think there is an, an idea here of if you're a teacher in a congregation, in a public setting, right, all right, right, you're going to be hit with some hard questions. Definitely. People are going to view you differently. And it's good for you. <laughs> there is going to be a higher standard mm-hmm. put on you mm-hmm. than just rather everyone else in the class. And so I think it, it's just a good reminder. Constantly check yourself to make sure that what you are teaching is God's word. Oh, man. And not your version of the truth. Oh, yes. There is no more holy ground for a believer than to present the Word of God entirely accurately and completely unaltered as God intended. But, of course, Mark, to be able to do so requires a sacrificial dedication to study it objectively, right? Without any bias, Second Timothy 2.15. So, like I said, better not to teach than to teach error, but better to teach truth than to refrain from speaking up. So like you said, if you've got that talent and you're an excellent communicator and you are familiar with the word of God because you have spent a lot of time digging through the truth, be a teacher, right? Absolutely. All right. Verse two warns, for we all stumble in many ways. Any thoughts there? Well, 
Obviously, we're not sinlessly perfect. Here's another reason why we need to view the teacher's role more seriously. Mm-hmm. No teacher is faultless. Yep. Okay. So, I mean, an inspired teacher, even Peter, set the wrong example mm. in Galatians 2. True. So, obviously, non-inspired teachers, and that would be us, Yeah. we can be fallible. You know who I really respect in this regard, Mark? I think about 1 John 1, 9, when it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, yes, we're going to stumble. We're going to stumble in our words. And teachers who teach publicly may on occasion stumble publicly with their words. The teacher's mark that I admire after that happens is when they go back publicly and say, listen, I just said X, Y, Z, and because of passage ABC, I now have thought better of that, and I've come to a more accurate conclusion, and here's what the actual truth is on that. So recanting something publicly, I mean, you can never take everything back, but you really have to admire the humility behind that. Yes, a good observation. You know, he says that we stumble in many ways. Notice he does not say we stumble all the time. And it doesn't mean that all of us stumble in every possible way. <laughs> and let's just give up and stop trying, you right. know, to be accurate because we all stumble. And- but I think in many ways is the idea of there are all sorts of ways that you could lead someone astray. Mm-hmm. Not that you're doing all of them, but mm-hmm. there's kind of an endless list of ways that you could misrepresent the truth. Yeah. So... Again, it's another good heads up. Before I say it, what would be the best way to say this so that no one could misunderstand what I'm saying? Right. So it goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Mark, I thought no one was perfect. What's going on here? I think obviously not sinlessly perfect, but here probably more mature, full-grown, a well rounded person. Yes, the AMP translation says fully developed in character without serious flaws. I thought that was a yeah helpful translation. So it would be the idea that if you can master your tongue so as not to fall into sin through like mm-hmm. angry words, mm-hmm. misrepresentation, falsehood, gossip, you are a spiritually mature individual. So it adds to that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Mark, do you think that speaks to the fact that oftentimes it's our mouths that are (laughs) the first to go out of control? I guess you could also argue it's our thoughts that precede the controlling of our words, which precedes the controlling of our actions. So really controlling our thoughts and our words comes, Yeah, prevents the body being out of control. Yeah, I think you're on the right track there. God's measuring stick for spiritual maturity includes the use of our language. And maybe one of the first places, as you noted, Jesus said, before you say it, before you do it, it comes from your heart. But probably one of the first places where you see it is what people say. Typically, people say it before they do it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the reasoning behind here. If you can abstain from gossip and angry words mm-hmm. and misrepresenting God, yeah, that pretty much indicates that your pr- the rest of your life is probably pretty much under control as well. Yes. And if you've studied the word so much that you're not inadvertently leading people astray. All right. So verse three goes on to say, now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. 
Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Any thoughts? Well, a couple of very great illustrations, simple illustrations that everyone would understand. And so I love how James is very practical. And the other thing is, these illustrations might kind of be here because a person might say, well, if that's what James says, then it's impossible. Mm. You know, it's just the tongue is so powerful. Yeah. And I think the two illustrations here of we have a very powerful horse, like a war horse. Yeah. High spirited. Mm-hmm. Yet notice how that horse can be controlled by something very small mm-hmm. and where we're able to direct the entire physical body of the horse as well. Mm-hmm. And then you got this massive sailing ship driven by the seas, you're going like, well, there's no way you can control that. And he says, well, yeah, there is. There's that very small rudder. Yes. And so the emphasis seems to be here on a couple of things. One is the tongue can be controlled. That is possible. But number two, just the awareness of, don't say, well, my tongue is such a small part of my body. Okay, but just this realization of Something very small can also be something very powerful. Mm-hmm. Verse 5 says, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So it really gets us into great trouble, Mark. Well, it makes huge claims. Uh, mm-hmm. Solomon will say in Proverbs eighteen twenty one, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Mm-hmm. When I think of boasting great things, I think of Psalm fourteen one: The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Mm. And then the Humanist Manifesto came out and said, but we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. While there is so much that we do not know, which is interesting, (laughs) humans are responsible for what we are or will become. No deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That's a good example of boasting Mm. in things that just are absolutely false. Mm. Amen to that. So there's another illustration then at the second half of verse five, where it says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. You I know, mean, Mark, that example you just gave, when I think about the fire related to that quote you just had, wow, yes. you, you really had a great illustration there. You know, we came from the Northwest and there on the West Coast, we're very familiar with forest fires. Yeah. People in Sad. the ancient world were also familiar with them. And okay. the thought here is that, it only takes a small spark. Yes, yeah, sparks will fly. And all of a sudden, millions of acres are destroyed. Yeah. Um, there was a passage I thought of it along this, of it, and I thought the thought is that the damage that can be done by irresponsible speaking or yeah. sinful speaking, yeah. there's really no way you could calculate that. You think of passages in the book of Proverbs like a slanderer separates intimate friends. That mm-hmm. is even the best of friends. Yeah. Or where there is no whisper or contention quiets down. You see the old newsreels of Adolf Hitler and his speeches yes. and going like, I mean, what sort of forest fire did that create? Uh, yes. And it also makes me think about now, Mark, how the world is on fire, that culturally we are in meltdown mode. Like what happened? And I think it's no coincidence that about the time that just about everybody has a public voice because of social media and stuff and lies can spread so quickly, you know, deception. And now it's so clever that it's fooling many, many people. And this is exactly what we're seeing. Verse six says, and the tongue is a fire, a very world of iniquity. I think about Mark, if you were to list like the top 10 disasters in world history, 
You just mentioned Hitler. Well, the Holocaust. The Holocaust. When you think about... Things like the First World War. Yes. All of those can be traced back to the tongue being used to spread false ideas. Right. And, And stirring up crowds and... When he says the very world of iniquity, I think it when someone says like, well, there's a world of wisdom in yeah. that, that's a very expressive statement. Man, it just all sorts of chaos can happen when we don't watch what we say. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the tongue, I mean, you can blaspheme God, you can curse God, you can steal, you can take someone's reputation, you can inflict a great amount of suffering, you can destroy people, like you can take children and just destroy them and they're messed up for the rest of their lives. It's just amazing how thoughts and words can either ruin everything if it's full of sin, um, but it can also be the answer. You know, when truth is spoken, there's so much healing that can take place. We often need to forgive one another of the damage that unrestrained words has done within our relationships. In your marriage, in your relationships, in your local congregation, in your community, what can you say to build people up and encourage them and Mm -hmm. give them hope? Yes, use your words to build people up. Says it's set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Ah. And I think the thought is that one member, one abused, is able to bring your whole being to hell. Okay. Oh, I see. And it says, though, it sets on fire the course of our life or the whole round of human life and activity. Mm-hmm. And the phrase there means literally the wheel of existence. Mm-hmm. One rumor, one bit of gossip can just inflame, well, an entire family, a congregation, mm-hmm. a city, a nation, yeah. you know? Yeah. But I think it also notes here, what's the source? Where's that flame from? Yeah. It's a flame fed from hell. Yes. And the trickery mark is getting with AI and everything. I am just, it is jaw dropping about how, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to an ad that came on during a YouTube video that I was watching and it was in the voice of Donald Trump. But I couldn't believe that he was saying what he was saying. And somebody had used AI to duplicate the sound of Donald Trump's voice saying things that he has never said. And the way that you can appear to put words in someone's mouth on video and all of that kind of thing, it's going to be tricky. And we are going to have to be as shrewd ass serpents to even be able to tell the difference now between a lie and the truth, because this kind of thing will set fire to the world. That is true. Hopefully the silver lining that will come out of that is maybe people will not trust the internet anymore. Because when your audience no longer trusts you, Mm -hmm. you do lose your influence. Mm -hmm. As we look at the passage here, set on fire by hell, I think the thought is that unkind words, cutting comments are not simply cruel. They're the language of hell. Mm-hmm. The, the man yelling at his wife isn't merely being insensitive. Mm-hmm. He's being demonic. Mm-hmm. I looked up some different translations of this phrase, set on fire by hell. CEV said, quote, sets a person's entire life on fire with flames that come from hell itself, unquote. And then there is an Aramaic translation that says, quote, sets on fire the successions of generations which roll on like wheels it also burns with fire, unquote. Yeah, the word generations really brings up the thought of that. When you're rebellious and when you're unwise with your words, you can really negatively impact your descendants Mm -hmm. for generations. 
The other thing I think that as we're taking a look at here, it's easy for people to excuse what they say. Well, I didn't mean it. I wasn't thinking, hey, I've got a temper. And James also believes there's a hell that we're just not merely displaying some sort of character flaw. Right. When we do this. Right. So verse seven was another verse, Mark, that has always been very hard for me. There it says, for every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. And I'm like, I don't get that. You know, like you cannot teach a spider to do tricks. It says every, every species of beasts, birds, reptiles, and creatures. But I think maybe what's going on here is that tamed here is a little bit more akin to like, you know, when an invasive species is introduced and is ruining, but with enough research and creative problem solving and time, those solutions can tame those wild creatures, so to speak. In other words, just like control them or manage, you know, animal management. Um, You can resolve things. So in that way, I think I can understand this verse that every creature has been tamed. You know, maybe it's through raid. Maybe it's through introducing another species that eats up the one that's destroying any kind of more like subdued. That kind of thing. I think subdued is good. It's not teaching that man has been able to make every wild animal into a household pet that you can pet. That's not what the verse is saying. (laughs) Which is what we think of in English with the word tame. Right. I think what it does mean is that man's been able to capture, cage, leash, and otherwise control any creature he wishes. Yes. Even the wildest of beasts can be put under our control in a zoo. Yeah. So power over the animals was given to man by God in the Mm -hmm. beginning, Genesis 1, 28 and 9, 2. So that's just stated because it's going on to make a comparison here. In verse 8, it says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. We need to make sure we don't misunderstand that because he's already given us a lot of points. He's telling us, tame your tongue. Tame the tongue. I think that verse is talking about in a universal sense that Mm. we will never be able to control everyone's language okay but number two i think it might be also on your own yeah on your own you're not on your own without god no one is able to get a hold of this problem gotcha divine intervention (laughs) is needed for you to be able to control your own tongue and yes that does make sense mark that on a universal level you'll not be able to control the tongues of all mankind When it says it's a restless evil, you know, I think the thought is that apart from God, and and here's the danger of like being not a Christian and not having God in your life, is that you've got something always lurking within you, like a loose cannon, that can just go off at the most, which it always does, at the worst possible moments, at the worst possible time. Mm -hmm. The word restless is also an ideal word for the activity of the gossip, Uh the skeptic, the false teacher, the slanderer, Uh the liar, someone who's angry. To our audience, you know individuals like this, they can't let it go. They can't drop an issue. They just have to keep on doing damage. Yes, and when I think about restlessness, Mark, I think about... You know how toddlers, you know, you have like, let's say a two-year-old and you're trying to get them to sit still. 
restlessness. And I think it just speaks to the amount of unceasing attention it takes to really rein in your tongue. It's restless. And so it's going to have to constantly be watched and managed. So a a daily pursuit. Daily pursuit. Yeah. What do you think about this phrase and full of deadly poison? You know, a person might say, ah, is that kind of exaggeration? But you really look at the damage that people have done. Oh, and just destroying other people and, and running people down. And, False and, accusations at and times. piling on. It is poison. It there, is absolutely poison. There are people out there and what they say, they have just become poison. Mm-hmm. Yes. What a reminder of Matthew twelve thirty seven that says, by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. I also want to point out that by carelessly consuming other people's words, that we can also be deceived and thus spiritually poisoned. You know, a lot of the media, Mark, is poison to your soul. And we need to take a fine tooth comb to everything that we allow within our eyes and our ears to make sure that it's drawing us nearer to God and not poisoning our souls thought by thought. Mm-hmm. And use scripture to do that. Mm-hmm. That does agree with scripture. It's poison. Yes. Verse nine says, with it, we bless our Lord and father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. I think here's the application really, and it's all been to these people. But here you might say would be an application to these Christians in their daily life. Uh, okay, you use your tongue in your prayers and you thank God for your blessings. Right, yeah. And yet you're also talking behind the back of your brethren, mm, right? Mm-hmm. That is inconsistent. Yeah. Well, it's, it's inconsistent to curse men when our purpose in life is to want all to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth, you know, as does our God, Second Timothy 2.4. When James writes, we're a long way from Genesis. Genesis is the passage that speaks of men and women being made in God's image. Mm-hmm. And even after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, guess what? We're still made in God's image. Yeah. That remains today. Now, we don't resemble God in a physical sense because God is a spirit, but it is an inward image. He's an eternal spirit, and we are a created spirit. And a person might say, well, what would that image include? Okay. Well, I think it would probably be such attributes as we have the ability to reason. Mm. We have a conscience. We can gain and store knowledge. We can pass on knowledge to the next generation. We can build on our knowledge. Yeah. Uh, we have the power of, of dominion over the creation, uh, the ability to understand and apply moral or spiritual truths, the ability to pattern ourselves after the character of God. So don't let the devil convince you that you're just matter. That's all you are. You are actually a soul or a spirit. That's who you really are. This passage reminds me a lot of Proverbs fourteen thirty one. He who reproaches the poor reproaches his maker. It's interesting how many people, when they become unbelievers, they have the cynical view of people. It's almost like if you don't love God, you're not going to be able to love people. I just hear other people out there who are not Christians complaining about all the other people out there. You know, those people, and they just don't like people. And God said, there's something really wrong with that. You can't express your love towards me and at the same time express disgust for the human race that actually is made in God's image. 
Mark, I love that comment. And really, I think all of those attributes that you just brought out that in ways that we are created in the image of God, I think it speaks to the existence of the creator. And it really reminded me of Dr. Henry Morris quote when he says, the first cause of limitless space must be infinite. The first cause of endless time must be eternal. The first cause of boundless energy must be all powerful. The first cause of universal interrelationships must be omnipresent. The first cause of infinite complexity must be all-knowing. And this part, Mark, I think you spoke to. Yes. The first cause of moral values must be moral. The first cause of spiritual values must be spiritual. The first cause of human responsibility must have free will. The first cause of human integrity must be truthful. The first cause of human love must be loving. And the first cause of life must be living. Yeah, and for our listeners, that's from his book, Scientific Creationism, okay. pages 19 and 20. All right. Thank you for that. And just one more thing, Mark, I want to add on your comment is that one reason we're to treat another with dignity, even while they remain under the curse of their sin, is that their soul is precious to God and worth more than the whole world. You know, they're made in his likeness, and that's why we need to treat one another with dignity. Mm-hmm. So verse 10 says, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. That's a pretty hard argument to resist. Like, wait a minute, but I do have a good heart. Okay, but where's this cursing coming from? Mm-hmm. Right? And that connects you to the next statement. A very simple illustration. Mm-hmm. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Nope. <laughs> and so we're brought back to a very honest, clear perspective. Yeah. And that is, how can those curses, how can that gossip and slander come from a good heart? Yeah. And here it is. It doesn't. It does not. Verse 12 confirms it. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh. And Mark, this sure does sound like objective truth. There is a difference between things that ought to be and things that ought not to be. It's a great argument to people that try to rationalize and protest that while they may say mean and hurtful things Mm -hmm. or even false things, Mm -hmm. at the same time, They're really good and loving people. And James says, not buying that, Mm -hmm. not buying that. You can be a good and loving person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it's a great argument for the person that says, but I love God. I love God. Okay, but wait a minute. Love God, love your neighbors yourself. Those commands go together. And you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm. That really means that your claim to love God is seriously suspect. It cuts through that. It does. And I'm thinking about Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, that says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then by their fruit, you will recognize them, unquote. As we head towards our next podcast in the second part of James chapter three, I think James is going to get down more to, there's really only two sources, right, of Uh this fruit or this bitter and fresh water. It's either going to be wisdom from above God or wisdom from the below 
the yeah. demonic wisdom. Yeah. And that's really going to help because we need to get down to what is the source that's coming out of you. Yes. And is it the right source? Yes. All right. Well, looking forward to that conversation and very thankful for those who have joined us to listen to this conversation about James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. God bless.